0: Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. So we're continuing on uh, in our series, Freedom in Christ in Galatians. Uh, uh, one thing I would recommend to you, if you if you missed any of these um, ser- any of these messages, I would recommend you you, you go back on, go on Spotify or, or YouTube or whatever, and pick up where you lost because there's a lot of there's a lot of good teaching in God's Word in here. That it, it's really something that you need. Because anymore, you know, freedom in Christ. But there's people taking your freedom away that you don't even know about. But if you don't know the word, you're not going to realize that. So uh, I recommend that you do that. And we're going to be rolling this morning at uh, Galatians two seventeen to 21. Um, I would recommend you either open your Bible or your Bible app and keep it keep it there. Don't close it when we're done. You don't need to look at me. You're just going to see an old guy fumbling with his notes. That's not that isn't going to help you any. But if you keep looking at God's word, that will help you. Because it does. It, it, it comes alive. God's word is alive. It's active. And it will, it will penetrate your hearts and your minds if you let it go there. So that's important this morning. Let it go there. And let, let, his, word, let his word saturate. Let his word saturate your life and your heart. And uh, see how much more you pick up when you do it that way, all right so let's pray this morning before we start father, we just um, <laughs> we just thank you, Lord, Lord'm as we as we look at some of these passages this morning lord, I'm just blown away at the grace and the love, the compassion that you have for us, Lord, so often Lord we we don't know how to accept gifts. A gift is free. We, for some reason, we as, as sinful human beings think that we need to take what you've given us and add something to it, change it, move it around, or whatever, but Lord, it's just, it's there. It was given for a reason. Lord, help us just to understand that, and just accept it, and then, and after we, we accept the gift, that we grow in the gift, and, and that brings us just closer and closer to you and our love and you love that you have for us that just, it's immeasurable. So Lord, I thank you. I praise you this morning. I ask your, your love and your guidance on this study that you would uh, edify our hearts and grow our minds and, and, and just, just expand our horizons in, in, in your love. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Galatians 2, 17 to 21, all right, now, as we go through this study, it's going to, be, it's going to build on itself, so uh, we're going to start out, we're going to kind of go back over where we were, and then we'll go through it. So right now, we're going to read from Galatians 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners... who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So what I wanted to do uh, this morning before I even start getting the text, I gave some definitions of some terms that uh, sometimes we don't know these particular terms. They should be on the slides. Uh, Right. So if you want to click the next one, right. Okay, so the first one is justification. Now the reason I, you know, quite a few years ago, I was teaching a Bible study, and we had some kind of terms in it, and then there was a lady who kept Googling these terms and coming up with different definitions. So I want to make sure you, you understand um, how it's related to New Testament scripture, and how it's related to Paul's theology in general. So if you get the idea of that, you'll understand it better. I know a lot of you have probably heard all these before, but if not, it would be good review. And maybe you are online with us this morning and you never heard this stuff. So good stuff. Um, justification is the first one. God's act of remitting the sins of guilty men and women and accounting them righteous freely by his grace through faith in Christ. Justification is different than a pardon, because a pardoned criminal still has a record. When a sinner is justified by faith, their past sins are remembered no more. Okay, the next one is sanctification. To make holy the process in a believer's life that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the renewing of our minds takes place so that we don't pursue sin and we do pursue righteousness. A person gradually becomes more Christ-like with our motives changed, as well as our actions. Uh, Grace, God's undeserved favor given as a free gift, complete forgiveness of sin as God's love overflows in your life. Next one is works. Works, trying to earn God's favor and securing a discharge from sin, doing good deeds to to try and earn salvation, trying to make up for sin and... Earn salvation by following and keeping the Old Testament laws. Good works come from salvation, but can never earn salvation. Adiaphra is one we're going to come up with in the study this morning. It means indifferent. It's a Greek term Luther and other Reformation reformers like to use, meaning those doctrines or practices that are matters of indifference because they are neither commanded or forbidden by Scripture. And and that's our definitions this morning, and I hope that you will kind of, if you don't know them, you'll kind of get them in your minds, because when you study, if you study Galatians or if you study Romans, they will be helpful to you understanding where Paul is. So this morning, as we continue in our Galatians study, I love what Dan said in the beginning of the series. If you remember, he talked about relationship between older brothers and the younger brother, he, as a younger brother, would learn good things to do and not so good things to do by watching his older brothers. And he likened the Galatian church as our older brother. Much can be learned in life, not just by learning what to do, but also by learning what not to do. Unfortunately, down through the centuries, the church um, often has not learned what not to do, repeating the same grave errors over and over again, and the same goes for individual Christians as well. Careful study of what Paul teaches in Galatians is especially important. In a large part, the last couple of weeks, we've been learning what not to do by Peter. In that sense, Peter's our older brother, and we should learn from his mistakes. All right. So we're living in a time that's not easy to go along. It's easy to go along and to get along, right? We can just do as we want and let everyone kind of do their own thing, but we are watching our country and its perceived christian values change very quickly all right and and if you if you think back even a few years ago things are different and we're not going in the right direction many years we the church have allowed the world and its messed up values dictate what is moral and what is immoral the lines have been blurred and in many instances the church tries to find and fit in drifting from the truth of the Bible instead of allowing the world to change the church. Like Peter and the other leaders of the church have often caved into pressures, pressures from political political stuff, correctness, from anything that goes in this world, they cave in. In our message today, Paul will teach us how to insist on the truth of the gospel and to fight against those who would add man-made rules to what God has given us. So I put this quote down. This is from uh, Richard Longenecker. uh, He wrote a commentary on Galatians. There's much in this Galatian account for Christians today, living as we do in a pluralistic society and amidst many representations of the Christian faith. False brothers and judicizers of all sorts abound who motivated by their own agenda, attempt to conform the gospel To their own vision and purpose. Christians today need to be discerning. Furthermore, we need to appreciate how various practical concerns and speculative ideologies can distort the truth of the Gospel, whether they be those of others or ourselves, but Christians today also need to understand that there can be differences among true believers, and that such differences, particularly when involved different understandings of redemptive logistics, or differences of cultures need not tear us apart. Indeed, where there exists a basic agreement in the essentials of the gospel, it sets before us a prototype of mutual recognition and concern for one another. Despite our differences, it teaches, in fact, something of how to distinguish between things that really matter and the lesser importance. The so-called adiaphora, where to stand firm and where to concede and even where to defy people and pressures and when to shake hands and reciprocate with expressions of mutual concern. So my reason for using this rather long and complicated quote is that we as a church need to know the difference between what is essential in the gospel. And that often is what is what happens we don't know the difference and and I'm sure in Paul's time there was people who did not know the difference they didn't They didn't know, they they mixed law in with the gospel and they didn't know the difference because they didn't know what was true and what wasn't. So so often we fight over really stupid things, but um, we miss or overlook the really important salvation issues. Knowing the difference is essential for being the church of Jesus Christ. Um, That's another reason why it's important that you study books like Galatians. If you don't study it, you're not going to know it. So... um, so I met, he mentions again that word adiaphora and, you know, Lutheran reformers like using that word because that was things that really weren't that important. There were things of indifference. Um, I guess to give you an example, Mercy Gate and True Vine Church have a lot of ministry things that they like to do together and they can do together. But the things that are different about the two churches are adiaphora. They don't matter as far as you know, when the real salvation issues come and all. So we have these things that we can do with other churches, but then on the other hand, we have things that aren't. All right? So while there are some things that come under that, that heading, places where we differ in the wrong run that don't matter, justification by faith alone, through Christ alone is not one of them. Getting this right is a matter of life or death, spiritual life or death. So today is Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, guys. And I would say that um, at, least, at least some of you guys are probably going to receive a gift today of some sort. Maybe the wife brought you something, or the kids made you something, all right? Or you're going to get something special made for you today. Now, ladies, don't get the wrong idea when I tell you this. This is just hypothetical, right? Now, what do you think if later today you were told that you were getting a gift, all right? But you would not receive the gift if, until after you cut the lawn, straighten up the garage, all right? And did any of those number of chores you've been putting off for the last year, all right? How would you think about that as a gift, all right? It wouldn't be much of a gift, right? So gifts should be free with no strings attached except at a wrapping paper, right? So, Christ has, so grace through Christ has no strings attached. So I titled this message accepting the gift um, which I got actually got from Romans 5:15 to 17 but and the point is I wanted to make sure everyone understood that we're that we solely understand accepting the fact that we have done absolutely nothing when it comes to salvation okay just like a gift um, when somebody gives you a gift you receive it and you don't you don't ask questions you know I hope you don't anyway but you don't just receive the gift. And that's really all we're asked to do here. But as flawed human beings, we gotta add extra stuff into it, right? And our text this morning, Paul was fighting to keep the gospel pure from those who would change it by adding works righteousness to it. The problem is, as far as a man was concerned, was not new. This was came on from the beginning of time, really, beginning of biblical time. It actually began almost at the beginning when Cain, Offered a sacrifice of grain to the Lord, he sinned both by disobedience, bringing the wrong kind of offering, that's not what God asked for, and by offering it in the wrong spirit. Rather than bringing an animal sacrifice, as God had commanded, he brought the fruit of his own labor, proudly supposing that his offering of disobedience was at least as acceptable to God as the one he had prescribed. His was the first act of works righteousness. It was a forerunner of every act since then, every person of every year who has tried to come to God on the basis of his own merits and works or some humanly designed rules or regulations has followed in the unbelieving, race-rejecting steps of Cain. So when Cain rejected God's prescribed animal sacrifice, he rejected God's provision for substitutionary salvation with a blood sacrifice pointing to eventually what? Jesus' death on the cross, right? Often it seems that we want to make a big deal with God. In other words, in exchange for salvation, I will do this. And when you fail, the enemy will remind you that you just aren't good enough. I mean, there's a young lady in, that I work with who's one of the wait staff, and um, she'll come in a lot, she'll, she, and I don't know why she does this, I think she likes to annoy me with this, but she'll come in and she'll say, the other day she came in, she said, look, she said, I got really mad on the way to work, um, this man cut me out, I flipped him the finger, and uh, I cursed him out, but you know what, he, she said, I told Jesus I'm going to be good for the rest of the day. <laughs> so... So obviously, she didn't quite get it. And I've been trying to explain it to her. I'm still working on it, all right? So anyway, when I was saved in 1991, I had before then gone a long time without attending church. Of course, I had excuses or whatever. You know, I thought there were valid reasons at the time, but they weren't. And there isn't time to go into details this morning. I'll tell you my story at some point. But um, But I decided after missing church for the past 13 or 14 years, I was never going to miss church again, all right, when I got saved. Somehow I'd make up the God for lost worship time. So what does that sound like to you, right? Works, right? And that's exactly what it was. The trying to earn my salvation only lasted about two weeks. And after studying and praying and reading the Bible and all, I think I got, you know, God got a hold of me and said, you know what? This isn't what I want, you know? See, I had the right idea of course but i had the wrong motive you know uh, i was after that i was led in the right direction and often that's what happens with works things it's the it's the right idea but the wrong motive you know it might be a good thing but why am i doing it you know that, that's important so you see i was approaching it the wrong way so to make a long story short my reason changed for church attendance this time because i was loved by my savior and i loved worshiping him and it brought real joy to me, and I couldn't wait until Sunday, and I still can. Um, so it's, that's the difference. Not out of obligation or trying to make up for missing all those years of church, but only for one reason, and that was to worship my Savior. Grace had come into my life. You see, it, if it stayed a works thing, I would have burned out quickly, you know. It would have been one of those things, wow, Sundays, you've got to get up for church again, you know. As people often do. If it's an obligation, it will get in the way of Jesus. Ob- you know, if you just say, I have to do it, it'll get in your way. It'll get in the way of your faith. So you see, that makes a big difference between doing something out of obligation and doing out of love for God. If you come here on Sundays out of obligation, it's not going to work. You need to come here because of your love for Christ. In fact, that is the most important thing. So I was taught the doctrine of justification as a young boy. I had it for years in, in, in church, even when I was younger, but accepted it when I was 29. After that, I didn't work for salvation, but instead I was taught that I needed uh, to work from salvation. All right. When you ask people how they expect to become right with God, often their answer is, is based on the works definition. The works we're talking about here are those which people claim earning God's favor, right? To discharge them from sin. Sadly, for those who trust in their works, they are not justified in in faith by Christ alone, the result is eternal death. Because you can't be saved, you can't be near Christ if you just want to do works. It doesn't work. You can't put the two together. And at times, people who think they got it right still mess it up. How many times have you heard this one, well-meaning but still wrong? Christians answer the question of why they are God's children or how they expect to go to heaven by saying, I am right with God because I decided to let Jesus into my life or into my heart. It's not only misleading, it gives the impression that they are doing something. They are saying, I decided to let him into my heart. It's an action they are doing. And again, it seems like we want to make a deal with God. In other words, in exchange for my salvation, I'm going to let you in. And does again, it doesn't work that way. So you know, I, I, I get the eyes out of it. It's not I. It's He, Him, capital H, Jesus. Ever even while many Christians get it wrong by giving the message that we come right with God by something we do. We click that one slide. Thank you. Nope. Move forward. Two more. Yep, there we go. Okay, Martin Luther writes, I believe that by my own reason or strength, I cannot believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or continue to come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, and sanctified and preserved me in the true faith. All right? So growing up, um, there was a boy that lived near us um, when we were growing up. My friends and I gave him the name Rulebook. Because when we played, two of the games that we loved to play were stick ball and touch football. He would always interrupt and often ruin the game and tell us we're not following the rules. Okay? The folks who brought all the trouble for Paul were the Judaizers. They were the rule book people. They taught that you needed to add works to your salvation, this time by keeping the law of Moses. Paul explains this in Romans. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since the law comes knowledge of sin. That's Romans 319 to 20. You see, the law is important as a mirror to show our sinfulness, but it can only reveal sin, not remove it. Grace does not mean that we throw morality out the window, however. Some folks are sadly mistaken in thinking that by being saved by grace, that gives them a license to sin. You know, those who think and act this way should seriously question whether they are actually saved in the first place. When we get to verse 20, you'll see why you can't possibly take advantage of grace. Um... Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian. He called it cheap grace. So, you know, it's Christianity can be distorted in either direction. The Christian path is, and you probably heard this one before. The Christian path is a narrow road with big ditches on either side. All right. So, on the one one side of the road, I don't think I have any room up here. But one side of the road. And it's not a straight road, by the way. It's a, it's a, road, it's a road that's got a lot of twists and turns. But well, on one side of the road, you're going to have law. That's one ditch. And I'm not going to spell this for you. I didn't give you the definition. And the other side of the road, you're going to have licentiousness. And that is, you know, no law whatsoever. Do whatever you want to do. Morality's out the window. And the Christian needs to follow the road. So that, that's that's really what your choices are. If you're in the if you're in the cheap grace, guess where you want? <laughs> you went off the road. So that that's just the way it works. And as we go along, you'll see that a little bit more. So if you were tracking with the Galatians series at least the past two weeks in chapter two, Paul's defending his authority as an apostle and the gospel itself. First, he will defend the truth of the gospel against Peter's hypothetical, um, I'm sorry, hypocritical actions as he explains the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So you've learned, and James explained this in detail last Sunday, Paul called the actions of certain Christians to account in in Galatia. Now, what a church potluck dinner that must have been. Um, You can imagine Peter normally ate with anyone, especially the Gentile believers, but all of a sudden, when a certain group comes in, and James told you all about it last week, he was compelled to sit with other Jewish believers. Um, of course, working in the kitchen, I thought, man, this must have been wild. You can imagine all the food was mixed together, the pork, the beef, you know, maybe you had some turtle and some snake in there, I don't know what they were eating, but anyway, it was all mixed together, and then all of a sudden, these guys came in, and they had to separate the food, and it must have been a nightmare, but, um, you know if they had a roast pig sitting out they better put that one away too right that wouldn't have been cool either so um but anyway a joyous time of fellowship turned into a highly stressful dinner right uh they they deviated from the gospel when their actions gave a different message than their words you know i'm talking about peter paul will use peter's hypocrisy as an example uh a little word study the greek term beyond hypocrisy Originally referred to an actor wearing a mask to indicate a particular mood or type of character. A hypocrite is someone who masked his true self. Peter and the other Jewish believers who withdrew from the table fellowship with the Gentile believers knew what they were doing was wrong, but they were intimidated by the Judaizers. They were going against the truth of their convictions. And again, the Judaizers, they were the rule book people. And seeking to please the hypocrites, they became hypocrites themselves, causing even more trouble in the church at Antioch. You know, Paul reminds Peter that he himself did not live under strict obedience to the law. He probably said something like this Hey, Peter, you eat bacon, ham, and lobster. You don't keep the kosher diet. Now, because certain visitors are here, you act like you follow a strict kosher diet. Paul was deeply concerned about the divisions in the church at Antioch. Um, it was once like a thriving church that Christians were, Jews and Gentiles were together. Now they became factions, um, you know, and there was a big problem now regarding how Gentile believers could enter in the church. The false teachers, the Judaizers, the rule book people were teaching that believers were saved in part by keeping their ceremonial law and continued to be bound by that law to maintain their salvation. The actions of Peter and the other Jewish believers, Barnabas included in Antioch, were going against the gospel itself. By going along with the Judaizers, by example, even if not by doctrine, that was fracturing, it was tearing the church apart. The fact that Peter and Barnabas were spiritual leaders made the matter even worse. For years they had taught that salvation was by faith alone, and they themselves were good examples of that teaching. But by caving in to the pressures of the false teachers, they caused many other believers to stumble with them. So leading up to verse 17, Paul is condemning those who would add works to justification. In other words, Christ died for you, plus you need to observe the ceremonial laws. Paul brings forth one of the most forceful statements in scripture about the doctrine of justification. And you'll find it in several places in the Bible. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified, not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This way, the very doctrine that Peter and the others were in effect going against. All right. So in setting forth the true doctrine of justification, Paul will state what in verses fifteen and sixteen, by placing their faith in Jesus Christ, Paul points out that the Jewish law was not able to make them right with God, only an act of grace received through faith in Christ. Paul then will give a defense, and that's that we're actually into our our verses this morning. This is Paul's defense of of justification by faith alone. So if you look at verse 17, uh, it goes like this, but if in our endeavors to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ certainly a servant of sin? Certainly not. Verse 17 takes a little careful study to get the most out of it. As you look at Paul's whole defense in verses 17 and 21, you'll get the whole picture. Now, scholars may disagree, if you can kind of picture this, whether verse 17 should be read as a question Paul is now putting to his Galatian hearers, as he wrote, or an actual question he asked Peter when he was in Antioch. I would agree with, I would think it was the one in Antioch, but you can make your own decision there. Uh, by their behavior Peter and the other Jewish Christians at Antioch had given approval to the Judaizers' idea that is necessary for a Gentile to keep the Jewish rituals before they could become a Christian. These Jewish Christian opponents of Paul believe that the only remedy for sin was the law. For them to be without the law is to be a sinner. They were also, in fact, saying that they were superior to the Gentiles. Paul's response is for these Jewish Christians to place their trust, to place their trust in the law is to reject the work of Christ. That's what they were doing. They were rejecting Christ. To regard the law as necessary for dealing with sin, it is to think that Christ promotes sin. If the law is added to the gospel, then they would be saying that Christ, a Christ-centered, law-free gospel promotes sin. Paul is pointing that is either Christ or the law. There can be no compromise. If you want to click that next slide, um, Luther writes. By the grace of God, we know that we are justified by Christ alone. We do not mingle law, grace, faith, and works. We keep them far apart. Let every true Christian mark that distinction between law and go- gospel and mark it well. So on, on the blackboard, I put, some, uh, I put some differences between... I actually couldn't get them all on here. So what I put some difference between law and grace and, and how that works for you. See, if, you, if you, it's good stuff to, to really, when you look at it. So the law, the law prohibits. Grace invites and gives. The law condemns the sinner. Grace redeems the sinner. The law says do. Grace said it's done. The law says continue to work. Grace says it's finished. The law curses. Grace blesses. The law slays the sinner. Grace makes the sinner alive. The law shuts every mouth before God grace opens every opens the mouth to praise God the law condemns the best man grace saves the worst man the law says pay what you owe grace says I freely forgive you all the law says the wages of sin is death grace says the gift of God is eternal life the law says the soul that sins will die grace says, believe and live The law reveals sin. Grace atones sin. The law puts us under bondage. Grace sets us free in Christ. So Paul will say later on that if you accept the law, and even if you accept circumcision, Christ will no longer be a value to you. Christ will no longer be a vantage to you. You are severed from Christ. You who will be justified by law you have fallen away from grace. To rely on the law to curb sin and attain righteousness is to reject Christ. Paul is pointing out this should be unthinkable for his readers. So Paul's first point was to show that if the judicizers were correct in their doctrine that believers are saved in part by keeping the ceremonial law and continue to be bound by that law to maintain their salvation, then even before they arrived in Antioch, then Peter, Barnabas, and all the Christians were sinners by fellowshipping with the Gentiles. Now Paul's second point was even more devastating probably for Peter. Um, if the Judaizers were right, then Christ was wrong and had been teaching people to sin. Jesus had in fact taught that food could not contaminate a person. Um, he said, do you, know, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and expelled. By this, thus he declared all foods clean. In Acts 10, through the vision of unclean animals and a dramatic conversion of Cornelius, Peter had been given direct evidence that Gentile believers were in every way equal to Jewish believers. In many other occasions, in many ways, Jesus had taught that those who belonged to him were one with him, and also one with each other. Jesus prayed this prayed this prayer shortly before his arrest and trial and crucifixion. Jesus prayed for the unity of all believers, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world knew, would know that you sent me and love me as you love him. So how? So what did Paul is basically telling? Him, how can you separate Jews and Gentiles? when Christ died for both of them, and Christ prayed for both of them, and Christ, that wasn't his plan. Paul points out that the Judaizers were right. If the Judaizers were right, then Jesus was wrong, and a servant of sin. The truth of Paul's argument was inescapable. Paul's argument to Peter probably went something like this. Peter, you and I did not find salvation through the law. We found it through faith in Christ. But now after being saved, You go back into the law. This means that Christ alone did not save you. Otherwise, you would not have needed the law. So then Christ actually made you a sinner. But to his own question, Paul immediately responded, certainly not. One commentator points out that it must have been paid for, for Paul to even hypothetically suggest that Christ could participate in sin and even promote it. But the drastic danger of legalism that the Judasizers were promoting called for a drastic logic. And I think Paul had no other way to bring Peter and the others to his senses by to really give it to him in that way. Verse 18, Paul graciously uses himself as an example. For, for I build up what I tore down, I have proved myself to be a transgressor. When Paul says the things that I tore down, he means the false system of legalism done away by the preaching of salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone. Legalism puts salvation on the basis of good works, but if salvation is by works as they claimed, if not of grace and cannot result in peace of mind because no one could possibly know if they had done enough good works to be saved. Um, That was one of Martin Luther's peeves in the Middle Ages. He fought against that very false teaching, as he put it, That teaching like that would terrify consciousness by never being able to know if they really done enough for salvation. Paul, of course, is actually speaking of Peter here by adding the law back in, bringing a system of legalism that totally destroyed by Christ's atoning death on the cross. All right, so today people are still trying to build the law back up, even though it has been torn down. Unfortunately, there are so-called evangelical churches that add law to salvation because they're afraid, just like the Judaizers, that too much freedom will cause people to sin. Whatever reason, it seems that we just can't seem to trust God and need to add to his word. I've been in churches where stewardship is often taught in a very legalistic way. And don't get me wrong, stewardship is really important, and it's a topic, of, I'm sure, of another sermon, but... um, it shouldn't be put in the way that says you give X percentage of your of your income, and then if you don't, then you know salvation isn't yours. And, and churches actually hammer it down your throat in that in that particular way. Um, so another way that um, Christians add the back the law back in, and I, I still remember when I was a kid, um, the misquoting of Bible verses or interpreting them out of context. Um, Two examples when, you know, growing up 60s, late 70s, these were two examples that we had. Um, Two, two especially you really legalistic churches, one of them was tattoos and the other one was long hair. They thought that they could teach you, you know, and, and, and it's ridiculous, the one, I don't know, with tattoos is Leviticus 19. It makes no sense, totally out of context, but if you, if you go to the Bible with this preconceived thing, I want to prove this and then just pick a verse, that's legalism. And, and that happens, you know, that happens all the time. It happens now. It happened in, in the 60s and 70s. That was a big thing. People didn't like long hair. It's fine and the verse, you know. The, the answer, and, you know, totally, totally ridiculous. But people, people stood there and actually said, yes, oh, yeah, long hair. And then people were you know, people were ostracized for doing that. Hippie, <laughs> you know, hippie, no good. Satan got a hold of you. Get a haircut. Get a haircut. right. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly, exact, you were there, Tom, you know exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so. So, and there's also new legalism that's crept in our churches. The teaching of concepts that line up or embrace political correctness in popular culture. Um, The gospel itself has systematically been replaced with a new form of uh, the gospel, which says, you know, everything's okay, you know, there's no sin or anything else. But then when they did that, the new legalism now is coming in. That does not necessarily recognize sin, but it instead teaches that a person is justified by his or her care for creation and the created. Uh, and it's been totally left God out of the picture altogether. Uh, And now condemnation comes through those who don't conform to this new legalism. If you don't conform to what's politically correct, then you're condemned. And that's taught in churches uh, across the country. Um, But instead of building the law back up, we should conclude that we are justified by faith only in Christ without the works of the law. Now, after a person is justified and saved by faith in Christ, He or she knows that in their imputed righteousness they no longer are likely to be idle, you know. Here's where where working from salvation comes in. But as a good tree, they will bring forth fruit because the believing saved person has what? Has the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit dwells in a person. He will not permit a person to be idle, but instead stimulate that person to love God to prayer and thanksgiving, patience, suffering, and all sorts of good deeds and righteous living. We work from salvation, not for salvation. Paul brings this out in verse 19 when he says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Like Paul, we should realize that the whole idea of legalism clashes with and goes directly against God's tre- clearest truth and even our deepest convictions. Again, like Paul, we should realize that now that I have accepted grace and died to the law, I could never go back to a system of rituals and rules. Otherwise, I could not live to God. The law is not the believer's master, but God is. It is not our relation to the law that saves us, but it's our relation to God that saves us. And the real burden now is given this text, and I think Paul, this probably was some of Paul's too, as he... Goes against Peter and the Judaizers in Antioch. Justification by grace through faith will not lead to sin. A good, a quick look at Romans six sheds some important light on this. If you want to, um, if you want to track with me, I'm in Romans six um, for a minute here. Um, Paul writes to the Romans. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We knew that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let no sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That was Romans 6, 1 to 14. So justification by grace through faith will not lead to sin. Why? Because faith changed us from the inside out. Maybe not a great theological statement, right, but when you think about it, it makes sense. Authentic Christian, Christian existence always stands with one foot in the old life and one foot in the new life. The Christian life is one of tension between Adam and Christ, sin and grace, flesh and spirit, death and life, fall in human nature, which is with us from birth to death. That pulls in one direction. But the regenerated life in Christ, which extends from conversion to eternity, pulls even more powerfully in the other direction. Even though at times the outer person is failing, the inner person is then being renewed. Sanctification, which Paul is talking about in Romans 6, is really justification in action. And as some scholars put it, it is realized righteousness Sanctification is righteousness before the throne of God and evidence in the world. Israel was commanded to be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's in Leviticus. Christians are privileged to be vessels of grace in and for the world. In studying Galatians, I think this next passage I fell in love with, and I hope you do too. This verse gets to the heart of who we are as Christians. True spiritual victory, not by us, but he who lives in us. Um, and we're back in Galatians chapter, tw- uh, verse 20, chapter 2. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We need to realize that, yes, we still are living in the flesh. We still live as flawed human beings. Sin is still present, but there's a change that has come over us. As Paul said, I now live by faith in the Son of God. Our speech, our hearing, our actions, while they're still from the flesh, there's something different about them. Different because now they're influenced by the Holy Spirit. Righteousness is the beginning of a new life in Christ, for the believer faith does, for believer faith should and does bring holiness. And we have an invitation, and this might sound strange to you, the invitation is to die to self. We let Christ live in us and through us. We die to the law, to works, to selfish ambition, to pride, and Paul is saying that when you are saved you die in christ and are raised to new life so legalism's, legalism's most destructive effect is it cancels the effect of the cross to go back under the law would be to cancel one's union with christ's sacrifice on the cross and therefore to go back under sin i died to the law paul explains because i was crucified with christ and there is no longer i who live The old self is dead and the new self lives. Paul testifies, and this goes for us as well, I've been crucified with Christ and it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When a believer trusts in Christ for salvation, he spiritually participates with the Lord in his crucifixion and in his victory over sin and death. It's been said that the true Christian life is not much a believer living for Christ, by Christ living through the believer. Something to pause and think about this morning, and and this is what really tore me up when I read this, this is awesome. Um, You know, the surpassing moment for spiritual devotion and our obedience to Christ um, is summed up with Paul when he said, he said this, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's something to take with you this morning. That's something to underline in your Bible. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. So this morning, will you accept the gift, salvation that comes only by grace through your faith in the Savior? You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't do anything for it. And you certainly cannot add to it. Paul writes in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And I think that if law religion could have, if a law or a religion could have been given to save sinners, God would have given it. He could not just love us in the heaven, though. The only way God could save you and me was to send his son to die for us. The gift is complete. So as we get ready, I want to pray. But first I want to invite anybody who might, um, maybe this morning you're out there and you don't quite get this grace thing. You don't quite understand, maybe nobody was ever, um, maybe nobody ever gave you that grace in your life. Maybe you never experienced um, Experienced forgiveness. Maybe all you had was the law. So if that's you this morning, come on up and we'll pray with you. Raise your hand, we'll have someone pray with you this morning. Um, have you been trying to earn forgiveness? And if you've been trying to earn forgiveness it's not going to work, but when you accept Jesus as your Savior, you don't need to earn it anymore. He's already earned it. He's died for you on the cross, and and he comes. He says to you, come be crucified with me. Crucify the old self, bring in the new self. Die to sin. Die to sin because I've died for sin to get rid of it in your life, and mine. Father, we come to you this morning as broken sinners in need of a Savior, but also as those who have received a special gift. Jesus, we thank you and praise you that because you were, because of you, we can die to sin and we can live the newness of life. Jesus, you have... Um, You've given us the greatest gift that we could ever ask for. Help us to understand that the gift is there. It's free, but all we need is to is to come to you. All we need is to come, have you as our Lord and Savior. The gift is there. We just need to accept it. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: tables of consuming the one who loved you and gave himself for you. The one whose flesh was torn, whose blood was spilled, that he might redeem you, that he might rescue you from the law. Man, what an amazing, incredible, beautiful gospel this is. Think about the best gift that you've ever received on earth. And just put yourself back in that moment of receiving that incredible gift. There's nothing that you can do to earn it, there's nothing that you can do to, to pay it back or to make up for it, but you just receive it, you accept it. And so this morning, man, we get so. So kind of just caught up in yeah. Christian life and cliches that we kind of look at a text like this and think, "Oh, that's not me. I, I don't, I don't, I don't fall back into trying you know, into earning salvation. I don't do that." Um, but the reality is, I, th- I think all of us kind of slip back into that mm-hmm. all the time. <laughs> we slip back into it so often, and so maybe we could just take a few moments of prayer before the Lord, just to kind of identify. What are the ways in my own life that I'm kind of slipping back into trying to earn my favor with God, trying to earn my justification, Mm -hmm. trying to earn the salvation, trying to pay it back? Mm -hmm. So before we take the elements, let's just kind of hang out there for a moment in quiet prayer before the Lord. those things and imagine yourself nailing them to the cross. Those yes. things are nailed to the cross with Jesus. Those things are buried with him in his death. Mm-hmm. He has raised you up to life. Mm-hmm. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant of salvation by grace. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup. Right even as we end our time here today, and then we go from here again to honor fathers, to be honored if we're fathers. Lord, would you continue working in our hearts to reveal areas where we've just tried to justify ourselves. Spirit, we need you to keep putting the finger on those things. We need you to bring them for our eyes. Justified by faith in you alone, Jesus. And we want to be a church that is just known for being people who are uh, displaying Christ living through us. The flesh is of no help in that. Lord, we want to have you living in us and through us and among us this glorious grace to the world around us. And so Lord, I thank you for using Larry this morning. We bless him. Thank you, Larry. We bless him. Lord, thank you for the word of God that you have preserved through the ages that we might cling to this truth. Lord, we accept your gift again today.
2: to accumulate, to know your favor, your pleasure, your love. Jesus, thank you that you bore it fully in yourself. And Jesus, thank you that you just didn't do a work from us and then just set us on our way saying, okay, you got the gift, now just kind of get through life. bearing the punishment of our sin but it's a whole other thing to know this immeasurable grace constantly given by your immediate presence with us we are not deserving but you are just that good (laughs) so we thank you Lord thank you Lord as we go from this place we do just ask that your grace would be evident and as we love to say it Lord that your presence would be known. We want to walk with you. We want by faith to just kind of keep our eyes on you. We want your Holy Spirit like a dove on our shoulder just to kind of lead us and guide us along the way. We don't want to neglect all that you have granted us. And so, Lord, give us eyes to hold you, walk with you through this week, uh, fulfilling the purposes that you set before us. Lord, Thanks peace to you guys.